morning, everyone. So good to be with you this morning. We are diving into a new series today, which will go over the next eight weeks, uh, in the Lord's Prayer entitled, Words That Change Your World. And if you have your Bibles or your electronic device, you can get to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. We'll get there eventually. At Central Heights, our vision statement states that we are a movement of more and growing followers of Jesus, developing healthy churches for the glory of God and the flourishing of our city and the world. This vision statement comes out of Jesus' promise to build his church more and growing and his commission to the church that we should make disciples who make disciples. And as we look at this movement that Jesus started, we see that he modeled it and his church modeled it that has so much to do with God answering prayer. And so we're going to dive into that. I look at the life of Jesus. I look at the life of his church. And without prayer, there is no story. In the, in the first four Gospels, as the first four, the four Gospels as we read them, uh, you look at the life of Jesus and his ministry, and so critical to it was this part of his life when he would go into prayer. For example, when he needs to choose the 12 apostles, this important decision as to, you know, who are the guys that are going to be the leaders of the church when Jesus is gone, and they're going to take this movement forward. How does Jesus go about picking those 12? Well, Scripture tells us in the Gospels, he went up onto a mountain and he prayed, and he prayed. And he prayed. He prayed through the night. And having prayed through the night, then he chooses the 12 that will be his apostles. Not that much later, three of those 12 are with Jesus when they have this incredible experience. It's known as the transfiguration. And so before their eyes, Jesus is like changed. He starts glowing, glistening white. Well, when and how did that happen? Well, it happened because they had gone up onto a mountain to pray And as they're there, this incredible incredible event happens. They hear God, the Father, speak from heaven. Listen to my son as they were in prayer. At the end of Jesus' ministry, as his work is coming to completion, uh, what does he do? Well, we we hear in John 17, he, he spends time talking to the Father, praying in this critical time for his leaders, for his disciples, for his followers that are going to go after him. And, and really, he's praying for the church. He's praying for us, those who will believe uh, the message that they'll hear. And he's, he spends this time in prayer for them. And then just before he goes to the cross, and how does Jesus prepare himself for this brutal event and this crucial moment in history? He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and what does he do? He talks to his Father. He prays. And so it is with his church that is to follow. After Jesus dies, he he suffers this crucifixion and he rises from the dead and then he spends 40 days with them talking to them about the kingdom of God and as he's instructing them, he says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, talking to them about the Spirit. So you're supposed to wait there. And how do they wait? How does these followers of Jesus wait? Well, it says in Acts chapter 1, they devoted themselves to prayer. In Acts chapter 2, it's not during a strategy meeting, but it says as they were together, no doubt, as they were together praying, it's in that time that God fulfills his promise, pours out his spirit. Peter preaches this anointed message, and on that one day, 3,000 people, like three services filled to the rafters in one day, commit their lives in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and are baptized 
amongst the people that pray. Well, it seems that the locals, a lot of them aren't that happy with what's going on here. This movement, this, 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 what, this stirring, this change, this group of people. And so they take the leaders, uh, Peter and John, and they arrest them. And they, then they release them and they threaten them. And how does the church respond to that in Acts chapter 4? Well, they develop a safe planning meeting, a plan to protect meeting. No, what do they do? They respond by calling out. It says they lifted up their voices together in prayer and they call out upon God and they talk to God about his sovereignty and they ask God to give them boldness and that God would do powerful things among them. And as they pray, God answers their prayer and the place is shaken and and the apostles give great testimony, great witness to the message that they're preaching in answer to their prayer. We skip forward to Acts chapter 10 and we see how God opens this gospel good news message to the world, to the Gentile world, because it had primarily been with, among the Jews. And so now God's opening the message and, and we see how he puts together a Gentile named Cornelius and one of the leaders, Peter. And it says in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is a devout God-fearer who continually, 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 guess, prays. He prays until this man is given a vision that someone's going to come and preach the good news that, that he's yearning for, wants to hear. At the same time, simultaneously, we have Peter, who it says at the sixth hour goes up and prays. In other words, he had a regular rhythm, as many Jews did, that he would pray at certain time periods of the day. And at the sixth hour, what Peter does all the time, he goes up, he prays, and in that moment, Peter receives a vision which destroys his categories and causes him to go see Cornelius to preach the good news to him as God opens the doors. They hear the message. The Holy Spirit falls on them and it causes all kinds of havoc in this movement that God is creating in answer to prayer. And we skip forward just a couple more chapters. Acts chapter 13. And there some of the leaders are together, including this new converted believer who was a persecutor named Saul, now called Paul. And as he's there, they discern that Paul and Silas are to be sent out on this missionary journey. Well, how did they discern that? How did they know now was the time? How did they know these were the people that were to take this message as God's opening up the door to the Gentiles and take it west to all the Gentile region? How did they know that? Well, the scripture tells us they were gathered together in worship, fasting, in prayer. Jesus modeled ministry that was rooted, grounded, founded in prayer and relationship with his father. The early church demonstrates what they learned from from Jesus whom, whom they watched, but also the Jesus whom taught. So Jesus modeled it and taught it. So as we look this summer at the largest body of teaching that we have from Jesus called the Sermon of the Mount in in Matthew chapter 5 to to the end of chapter 7, we probably should not be surprised that at the heart of this Sermon on the Mount are Jesus' instruction in regards to prayer, which we often refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Let me read it together with us. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some people call this the disciples' prayer, but throughout the world it's mostly known as the Lord's Prayer. And I want to discuss today just very briefly the first sort of half phrase, our Father in heaven. And as we look at this phrase, we're going to just look at three specific things, that, that this Lord's Prayer is powerful, that it's personal, but let me begin this morning by talking about this prayer is, is plural. It's plural. So I don't know if you've experienced a setting like this. It's, I've, I've experienced quite a number of times. Um, you're in a... a setting with a group of Christian believers and uh, you're at a Bible study or something like that or a mid-sized community group and uh, you decide to split up into smaller groups to pray. And so there's going to be four or five of you. So um, I've broken into a group. I've changed the name here, but uh, in this group there's a guy named Jeff. And as we're in this group, we're, we're there to pray, I can see that Jeff is uncomfortable and you really don't have to be an accountant to see how this works and how the stress, the stress ratchets up, you know, over the next few minutes. So if there's five of you to pray and one person prays out loud in public, what does that leave you? Help me out. Wow, that was weak. <laughs> five minus one, how many left to pray? There's four of you. So when another person prays, what does that leave? Okay, and another person prays, what does that leave? There leaves two people, and you know, you can, like, you open your eyes, you know, because we don't have to pray with our eyes closed, and you just look at the body language of Jeff, and you realize he's dying a thousand deaths. You wish you had a heart monitor just to see what was going on there. You can see his face is redder. You can see this sweat on his brow. Why? Because he's going to, everybody knows there's this expectation. He should pray in public. And see, I, I've, I've learned, I've discovered for some people, Prayer is a little bit foreign in their private life, and so when you think of doing it in public, it's absolutely terrifying. But Jesus taught us to pray, our Father. It's plural. And as you look at, 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 at further down into the Lord's Prayer, we see that he has in mind, he wants to invite us not to just be thinking about ourselves and not just to be doing it ourselves, although that's good and that's, that's wholesome and right, but we need to expand that. When we think of prayer, it's not just individual, but it's also corporate. And so we read the words at the second half of the prayer, um, give, uh, not give me my daily bread, but what? Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive our sins or debts or trespasses, whatever version you're using. Lead us not into temptation. There, there's this idea, this concept of plurality that Jesus expected his church to pray together and we see that from their modeling, from their example, that they did that. So what do we do if we're the Jeff in this world and, and it's just so hard for us and it, 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 it's so uncomfortable and we, we don't like this? What do we do with that? I remember I was teaching a, a class. It was a follow-up class, actually, for, for Alpha. 
where after people had taken Alpha, that they could learn some of the basics in the Christian faith. We wanted to give them tools that would help them live out the Christian faith really well for the rest of their life, not just have to be spoon-fed for the rest of their life. And one of the things we did in that course was just have a, a section on prayer. And we, we wanted to grow in prayer. We wanted to teach people how to pray. And part of that was learning to pray together with others because believe that this is what God wants for us, that we actually learn and we engage in prayer in plurality, not just our own needs, but thinking beyond our needs, thinking upward, outward, not only in who we pray for, but in how we pray, that we do this together as the early church did, our Father. And so in this course, there's a a woman I find out later, she comes to me and she's just so excited, and I find out, like, she's been a Christian for years and never in her life prayed out in public with other people. And the joy that was on her face as she had burst through this sort of glass ceiling in her life and engaged in something that I believe is so, so important, so powerful. You see, if Jesus is inviting us into this, we have to know that it's going to be good for us. I can't tell you how many times when I've prayed with other people, and maybe I'm not in the right place, like maybe I've got something in my life that I'm struggling with, and, and you know, it's just hard for me to get there, my faith is at a low, but I'm with these other brothers and sisters sisters in Christ, and as we're praying, my faith is being built up because we're doing this together, and I can actually hear them. We're not doing it silently, but I can hear their faith as they express their prayers. This is part of the goodness. It's part of the gift that God has given to us in the lifetime of prayer, praying with others. It is plural. Secondly, it's also personal. Jesus said, pray like this, our Father. Now those are, those are incredible, intimate words. Especially when you consider the, the culture that Jesus is talking about this into. Jews were a minority in their day. And two of the main philosophical streams that existed at that time, there were the Stoics and there were the Epicureans. Uh, the Stoics, when they thought of God, God, God should be described as being having apathia, which we get the word apathetic from. Now, it wasn't a negative to them. The idea was that if somebody can make you feel something, so if someone can make you feel threatened, if someone can hurt you, if someone can cause you to feel uh, off guard or down, then that, that person has power over you. And because God should have no being that has power over them, by, by this thinking, the first principle, he must be indifferent He must be unaffected, apatheia. The Epicureans, their idea of God, they use the word um, artaxia, and the idea, sorry, ataraxia, and the idea was that that defines uh, serenity or complete calmness. And so you know just being in relationship with people as people are, you know, in relationship to one another, there's always drama, isn't there? Like where you have people, there's drama, isn't that true? Like... That's what happens. And so in their mind, well, God cannot be intermingling into the relationships of people and their drama because that would upset their God's serenity. He couldn't be completely calm and completely serene. So he has to be detached. So in the culture of their day, you have, a, you have an indifferent God or a detached God. That's how they viewed how God should be. And sometimes I wonder, is that how we think of God? Like he's detached, he's out there? doesn't really care. 
He's indifferent. Well, amongst the Jews, there was an understanding that God was their father. Thought about more, though, in, in national terms, like God was the father of Israel. And you see the, the term father for God sprinkled in different places, but it certainly is not dominant. Um, you see more God referred to as king or Lord. And, and so in prayers, you, I don't think I see anywhere where God is addressed the way that Jesus is telling us to address God. We see God addressed mostly as Lord from Solomon to Habakkuk. Oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord, over and over again. The closest that we get where we see God address his father is in Isaiah chapter 64 where Isaiah says, but now, oh Lord, you are our father. In other words, he's addressing God, oh Lord, and making a statement, you are father. That's, that's his close really as we get to this intimacy that Jesus is is inviting us into as he instructs us how to pray. Our Father, so amazing, such a privilege, and so predominant in the early church, the followers of Jesus, that that after Jesus come and he instructs his disciples to pray this way, you see in the New Testament how God is referred to as Father over and over and over again. Over 250 times in the New Testament, God is referred to as Father. So what does, what does God want us to get? He's our, our dad. It's our daddy. See, Jesus spoke Aramaic and translated in Greek as his Father, but most scholars say when Jesus is teaching us there, he's saying, come to God as your Abba, come to God, Daddy, Daddy. Now, I don't, I don't know how you feel about that when Jesus tells us to address God as Father. For me, I, the word Dad has great connotation, it has great meaning, great feeling to me. I had an amazing father, and I enjoy so much. I have so much love in being a dad. I love my kids. I love my family so much. Sometimes I just want to scream. I love my family so much. I was thinking about this. I was thinking uh, a little while back. I'm in a deep sleep. I don't know it at the time, but it's 2 a.m. in the morning, and the way things set up on my dresser, there's a landline. Do you know what a landline phone is, anybody? There's a landline phone. Yes, I like to keep a few antiques in the house. There's a landline phone next to my bed, and 2 o'clock in the morning, because, see, my, my um, cell phone's always on mute, right? So no one's going to disturb me. My landline's ringing. I don't know what time it is, but I know. I wake up, and I'm, I'm waking up from a deep sleep, so, you know, it takes a few seconds to become aware. Oh, the phone's ringing. That's why I'm awake. And uh, what are your first thoughts when that happens? It's like, oh, man, I am so, like, oh, I'm so glad somebody is calling me at 2 a.m. in the morning. Like, oh, I'm so glad I woke. I would have missed this privilege if I hadn't woken up at 2 a.m. That's not what you're thinking, is it? Come on, we're, we're people. What do you think? It's negative. Who's calling me at 2 a.m. in the morning? What do you, who is this? Grab the phone, press the on button. The first words I hear are, Dad, everything changes. It's my daughter who's living down under in Australia that I haven't talked to for a while. I don't care what time it is. And she's lost track, obviously, of what time it is in Canada. <laughs> Dad. And immediately the warm fuzzies start to flow through my body. And instead of, I'm, I'm all right. And we have a conversation. 
And I'm glad, I'm happy for that conversation because I'm her dad. But I want us to know this morning, whether you've had a great experience of fatherhood or whether you've had a bad experience of fatherhood, whether you are a good father or maybe not such a good father, that God is infinitely better and greater than we could ever be. That we need to define our understanding of God as Father, not by our own experience. We need to define our understanding of God as Father by His Word, by the story of God interrelating with people. And what He tells us about Himself from Genesis to Revelation is a, is a revealing of who God is. And Jesus is telling us now as He breaks into first century world, you need to understand one thing about God. And this is how you should talk to Him. Our Abba. Our Father, how beautiful, how sweet. And so we read, if we let Scripture define how we think about God, we even read in the Sermon on the Mount, like he is way better than I could ever be. Like he caused the rain to fall on the, not only the just, but the unjust. He's way more merciful than I would ever be, way more loving. And he anticipates the needs of his children way better than I ever could. And so as we approach him in prayer, we need to understand this is the Father that we're relating to. We talked about in Matthew 7 when it talks, tells us to ask, keep on asking, seek, keep on seeking, knock, keep on knocking. He says, because you being evil, you know how to, you don't give bad gifts. How much more your Father in heaven gives good gifts. You see, as great as I could be as a dad, in comparison to God, you can brand me as evil because God is infinitely greater, infinitely better than I could ever be. Jesus says, I want you to pray like this, our Father. The apostles, the followers of Jesus picked up on this. And so as, as they're writing to the church, we see, for example, Paul writing to the, the Romans in Romans chapter 8. He talks to them and he says to them, let me go there. Romans chapter 8, he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. In other words, God sent his Spirit and part of his work is to get this deep into our hearts that we would understand and know we're God's children and we can cry out to him, Daddy, Daddy. That's where he wants you to be. It's not the only place Paul writes about that. And to the, to the Galatians, he says in Galatians 4, verse, chapter 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is part of what Jesus came to do in living, dying, and rising from the dead is to bring us to a place whereby we say yes to God. We are adopted into his family and we can pray to him as our father. The Lord's prayer is plural. It's personal. Lastly, let me say the Lord's prayer is powerful. It's so powerful. Jesus prayed this way, our Father on earth, no, our Father in heaven. In the middle of the Lord's Prayer, it says that we're praying that things would be on earth as they are in heaven. 
to me, that would be an audacious request if it wasn't that Jesus had taught us to pray this way. When you think of heaven, what do you, what do you think of? My, my guess would be that you think things in heaven are much better than they are on earth, right? So we have phrases like, oh, that chocolate, that's so heavenly. Or when a couple is just, they just seem so fit and right for one another, we say, oh, that's a match made where? It's a match made in heaven. The more, more sobering is when, you know, someone's at the end of their life and they've, they're in suffering and pain and you have a conversation with them and often they'll say, I, I just want to go to heaven. Because we know that in heaven things are right. It's, the, it's an unseen realm. It's, it's a superior place. The realm of angels. And we can't see it, but it exists. We know from God's word. And it's, it's the place where God rules and it's the place of his presence so that everything is right there. So we have this desire. We want, want to see, want to experience, want to know heaven. And it's so spectacular. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 where it seems like Paul is saying he was transferred for just a little while, he says, to the third heaven. And I can't speak about it. I can't talk about it. It's, it's so unspeakable. It's, there are no words for it. This is the place of our Father. This is the realm where our Father not only exists, it's where he rules. So when Jesus is teaching us to pray this way, know that he's he's teaching us to, we're, we're breaking through the unseen, into the unseen world. Know that. And it's in the most privileged relationship with the one called Father who rules it all. Do you understand how powerful that is? Because God is powerful. He rules. He controls all things. And yet Jesus said, this, know this. You're praying to your Father who is in heaven. Wow. The Lord's Prayer, it's plural. It's personal. It's powerful. Daryl Johnson said that when we enter into prayer this way, it's to participate in heaven's invasion of the earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have so much more to learn about what Jesus is teaching us here. I'm so excited to get there. But let me stop this morning there and say, how do we do this? How do we apply this to our lives? How do we pray? Well, first of all, we can relax a little bit and know that Jesus has provided the content. Through the Lord's Prayer, he's provided some framework so that when we pray, we know we're praying things that God would want us to pray about because he instructed us to pray this way. And so that, I think that takes a lot of the confusion, a lot of the worry away. If we want to grow in this area, we can grow by learning the depths of the Lord's Prayer. But let me say that I believe that prayer is learned by doing and it's developed by practice. Prayer, you can't learn it by just hearing about it. You've got to do it. And you grow and you develop it by practice and by being stressed and going further into it, into different places. So a couple of weeks ago, I went for a road bike cycle ride with a friend of mine. And uh, he's really fit. He's really young. And we're good. We've become good friends. We went for a, a cycle together. And uh, he has done the Whistler Triathlon. Now, if you know anything about triathlons, I think it's one of the hardest in the world. He's done it. And as we're cycling along, he just turns to me with a smile on his face. He says, uh, you should do a triathlon. And I'm thinking, of course, you're crazy. 
No, he says, you should do a triathlon. I said, I don't swim. He said, uh, oh, we'll get that done in two months. I'll teach you. We'll have it done in two months. I said, I don't do triathlons. So we, we go for a bike ride, you know, a strenuous, uh, so many kilometers. And then later that day, he took a picture from his BitFit, how long we'd cycled. And, you know, he texted me. He said, uh, one-eighth of the way there. Because in our conversation, he had said, well, you don't, you don't get to the ability to do a triathlon overnight. He says, you build your way up. And so he says, you do, you, do, you know, 30-kilometer ride, then 40 then 50, and then you start to be able to do 75, and then you work your way up to being able to cycle 180 kilometers, so, and, and you can still walk afterwards. He says, you, you work your way up. And, you know, of course, I had no intention of doing a triathlon. I still don't, so don't try and pressure me. It's not going to happen, okay? I have all kinds of medical reasons. I can get a note from my doctor why I shouldn't do that, all right? So don't, like, don't take this and, oh, yeah, let's pressure Tim. No, it's not going to happen. So, um, but of course... Uh, I can turn anything into a sermon illustration. And so as we're cycling along and he's trying to pressure me into doing a triathlon, I say, and he's talking about how you just develop a little bit at a time. I said, huh. I said, that's how prayer works. I said, you, you develop your prayer muscles over time. I know a lady, she was a missionary from Korea. I may have talked about her before, but she's telling me about her prayer life. You know, everybody prays in Korea, in South Korea. That's our perception. But, you know, she started, five minutes was hard for her. Like, she couldn't pray for five minutes, hardly. And then, but she, she went for it. And she made that a discipline in her life. And then she started to pray 10, and then 15, and then an hour, hours, to the point where this conversing with God was just like, she's saturated in it. And it, it you know, it's part of her part of her life, ongoing. So this morning, as we think about how do we apply, like how do we dive into deeper, I want to I encourage us, each of us are in different places in our walk with God and in our prayer life. And if this is part of Jesus' gift to us, to growing in our relationship with God, would you be willing, would you be willing to go deeper? Would you be willing to, to, to exercise a little bit more? Would you be willing to, you know, to, 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 to be stretched if God wants you to be stretched? And maybe you've never prayed in public. Would you be willing to burst through that glass barrier? Maybe you've never prayed for more than five minutes at, or at the dinner table. Would you be willing to start to, to engage in a little bit more? Imagine what God could do if we all began to pray more. Not to earn anything, please don't take it that way, but because we can. And because our story, I, I believe to the bottom of my heart, our story as, as individuals, our story as families, our story as a church family, the story of the city, the story of our nation, I believe to the bottom of my heart will change if God's people will pray. Pray. 